0: And, you know, it's funny, as I say these words, the female in me, the woman who was raised as a girl, is like, oh, don't say that. Don't say you want to be a great American writer.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with writer Cheryl Strayed about her childhood her career, and about the value of taking a very long hike.
0: What happens on the outside, one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, also happens on the inside. The way to heal anything is to keep going.
1: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor, then with her interview with Cheryl Strad.
2: Design Matters is supported in part by Heffler & Co. online at typography.com. There's nothing more critical to good design than good typography, and good typography begins with the best possible ingredients, the fonts themselves. Pepler & Co are the designers of some of the world's most beloved typefaces, classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new designs like Operator and Decimal, typefaces that are designed to work well and work everywhere, whether you're designing a print, web, or mobile project. At typography.com, you'll find nothing but the highest quality fonts with complete families, deep character sets, and clever features to help solve design problems, as well as free tutorials to help you become a master typographer. Right now, as a Design Matters listener, you can save 15% on your next font order by using the code DESIGNMATTERS at checkout. That's all one word. When you visit... Typography.com forward slash design matters. You could say that Cheryl Strayed is very adaptable. Her memoir, Wild, was adapted into a movie starring Reese Witherspoon. Another book, Tiny Beautiful Things, was adapted for the stage by Nia Vardalis and Thomas Cale. Tiny Beautiful Things itself was adapted from an advice column she once wrote called Dear Sugar. And that advice column has ultimately been adapted into a New York Times podcast called Sugar Calling. To talk about it all, I'm joined by Cheryl Strayed, who is recording herself in her home in Portland, Oregon. Cheryl Strayed, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Hi, Debbie. I am so thrilled to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast and I've been dying to talk to you for ages. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so excited.
2: (laughs) I understand that you're socially isolating in Portland with your husband, Brian, and your two teenagers, one of whom just had a 16th birthday. Yes. How are you all doing?
0: First of all, we're doing great and we're so lucky to have each other and to have our health. And to be secure and safe and all of that. And yet, and yet and yet you know, there are challenges. It's it's the teenage years, as you know, are are meant to be times when the kids are Socially distancing from their parents. <laughs> you know, they, they, when they're like, you know, they Good don't want to only be in the house with us all the time. And uh, so I feel for them and everything fun on our horizon has been canceled. So, you know, we, we're having to think of new fun things and, and the teenagers have a different idea of fun than, than the adults do, it turns out.
2: I listened to a recent podcast where you said that this pandemic has made it clear to you that the first thing you are is a writer. Was that ever really
0: in doubt? No, no. It was never in doubt inside myself. But what I meant by that is one of the things that happened after Wilde became a bestseller is suddenly I had so many opportunities that were not Writing, they were writing adjacent. For example, I now have a really active career as a as a paid public speaker. I never, I mean, I do unpaid public talks too. But what I mean is, I, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I would be, you know, traveling the world giving talks. And I and I am like I actually have a whole career of that in addition to my writing. And that was born out of a combination of you know wild success and then also my you know, much to my surprise, I, I'm good at it, and I enjoy it. And so, you know, it's it it got really easy to say yes to talks, and yes, I'll go there. And yes, I'll do this. I say no to a lot too. But it became this thing I could do to earn money and to, to feel like I was doing interesting and important work in the world, that in some ways would be not a replacement for my writing, but sometimes a little easier. It'd be like, oops, I can't write today because I have to fly to, you know, Dallas to give a talk or something. And and that has been taken away now with this pandemic. All of my public engagements have been canceled. And I know I'm not alone in that other writers who give talks have that experience, too. So it's like, oh, okay, back to my origins. I'm just going to write my way out of this.
2: I understand that you're a huge planner, as am I, and it's been hard for you not to know what you're doing next month or July or August. How are you managing your schedule? Um, and I'm mostly asking this for my own sake, <laughs> to really get a sense of how you're managing.
0: It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, for me, pl- i realized that planning has always made me feel safe. And it's always been, for me, uh, the vehicle of my ambitions. What I mean by that is that setting intentions has always been really important for me in terms of like, if I'm in a place, whether it be emotionally or professionally or financially, that 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 it's not a good place, I think, okay, my intention is to go there. And I make a plan and I see it on the horizon and I think about the steps I need to take to get there. And so on the deepest level, planning has been actually an, an incredibly healing act for me. It's also been just I get pleasure from Knowing the logistics of everything, I'm a detail person. I love maybe that sense of control that I have when I look at my calendar and go, "Okay, we're going to do this in June and that in July and that in August, and this time next year we'll be here." You know, and I love that. It gives me a kind of uh, pleasure. I mean, I even joke with my husband. Our long-running argument. So let's see. We've met. We met in 1995. So I guess it'll be 25 years since we met this fall, this September. My running joke with him, you know, we've been fighting for for decades about him not putting things on the calendar and not being a planner. <laughs> and then every once in a while, he'll do it. Like he'll put something on the calendar. And I'm like, that is the sexiest thing mm. you ever did for me. Yeah yeah I totally that's my get love it. language yeah absolutely <laughs> what about
2: you well I I know that you're a list maker and you're not only a list yeah. maker but you make sublists to your lists and I do the same thing and I am so I don't know what the word would be, Um, attached to my calendar. I have a paper calendar. I've had a paper calendar for decades. Mm -hmm. And my dad used to send me the American Express book calendar, which I used to use. And then he passed away, so I needed another vehicle. And so I just have this little paper calendar. It's actually little, but it's two year calendar. And I am attached to this thing. It goes with me everywhere. When Roxanne and I were in Italy over this over last summer, I left it in the hotel, one of our hotel rooms, and didn't realize it till we were hours away. And I was inconsolable. I mean, it was almost like, okay, we need to go home. um, Because of my calendar, not being (laughs) she actually was able to get it for me. She she who is she's, you know, the most amazing human on the planet. She actually was able to call the hotel get the planner from the room and have it sent to me at our next hotel and And <laughs> she actually said it's because she's nice to the cleaning people in the hotel and I think that's true <laughs> which is why they sent it to us why they found it and sent it to us but I am also well you know hotels maker. do
0: that Debbie I that's know,
2: not the hotels I used to go to <laughs> 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 it's a different I world think- with Roxanne
0: <laughs> It is. She opens doors. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of Roxanne as well. But I have to tell you, like I I know you're speaking to a real kindred spirit here about this because <laughs> I, I I know that feeling too. I think you know that you felt untethered and, and lost without that. <sighs> it it is. It feels like the thing that anchors me to my life. And and even though I know rationally, like we don't have control of what's to come. It's some semblance. I like. Yeah. yeah, I like kind of feeling like I can, right? Yeah. And, and I think so I didn't even answer your question. So how am I dealing with it? Um, the first thing I was kind of in denial, like a lot of people, what I decided is the pandemic would last about eight weeks, mm. a- at least its impact on my life would be, you know, that was the first thing. Like, okay, everything is canceled in March and April, and maybe May. But June and July and August are totally on, right? And then as the weeks passed and I realized, oh my gosh, you know, and I finally, you know, I had to do the thing I have many times advised others to do when they feel powerless is to surrender and to accept. That's about accepting what's true. Accepting what's true, really one of the most radical acts of my life and I think any life even if what's true isn't what you want to be true. Right. Because then you can work from a place of reality rather than delusion. And so I'm trying to accept it and let go of uh, the future, or at least my sense of knowing what's going to happen in the future. Let's go into the past a little bit. I'd love to talk
2: to you a little bit about how you have navigated the arc of your life. You were born, Cheryl Nyland, in Spangler, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And moved to Shaska, Minnesota when you were six years old. Shortly thereafter, your parents got divorced. And in addition to the time after your mother died, it seems as if those years were some of the darkest years of your life.
0: hmm Did you realize it at the time? Gosh, that's such a great question. I, I did, I did realize it to the extent that a child can which is somewhat limited i was born into a house of really extremes on one hand i had this mother who was very loving and very kind hearted and warm and optimistic and and in so many ways communicated to me and my my older i have an older sister who's 3 years older and a younger brother who's about 3 years younger and she always communicated to us that sense of of wonder and love and light and and the beautiful things but we were living in a house that was you know frankly terrifying my father was violent and abusive he was emotionally abusive to all of us he was physically violent to my mother to an extreme degree and we were terrified of him and also you know we witnessed i witnessed my brother and sister and i all witnessed horrifying things things that i that i never Witnessed beyond that, you know, as an adult. Uh, I mean, I as so as a little child, my first, some of the first things I saw were really, you know, my mother being be- beaten by my father, uh, my mother almost being killed before my eyes by my father, my mother being raped by my father, and so my memory, my perception of what I understood in those years is definitely um, one of fear and and sorrow and terror. And darkness. But because that was my life, it wasn't really until my mother finally escaped my dad that I realized, oh, this is what happiness is. This is how it should be. So, yeah, I mean, I really think I had these kind of two childhoods, really three childhoods. But the first one was terror and darkness and violence and abuse. And the second one was my mom is a single mom, and um, we were very poor. We were poor with my dad too, but really living in poverty with a single mom and three kids, and a lot of chaos and disarray. But but also a lot of light and joy and and fun, and no longer being under the the, the sort of weight of that fear that you have when you live with somebody who's abusive.
2: I I completely understand. Um, in many ways, I had a lot of similar experiences. So the, a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you are really not only for my listeners' benefit, but also for my own in terms of really being so curious about how somebody can emerge from that kind of darkness to be able to say, this is happiness. You know, this is happiness. hmm You've written this about what a father's role is in his children's life. The father's job is to teach his children how to be warriors, mm-hmm. to give them the confidence to get on the horse, to ride into battle when it's necessary to do so. If you don't get that from your father, you have to teach yourself. Mm. That so resonated with me. What do you think you had to teach yourself? Like, what is the biggest thing you think you had to teach yourself? Oh.
0: You don't ask little questions, do you? You ask big questions. (laughs) Big questions. Sorry. Big questions. Um, You know, I think that the biggest thing is that I'm okay in this world. I have the strength and the courage and the resilience and the heart to be okay, to be safe within myself. And I think that that's, what I mean when I said to be a warrior, I mean I think we very often think of this in terms of battle. And 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 years ago, I wrote I wrote about this in Wild too. But um, so right after my mom died, I was living in Minneapolis, I was 22, and a friend of mine gave me a gift certificate to see an astrologer, and I was like, okay, well I don't know, like ah, what's this astrology stuff, you know? And um, but I thought, okay, I'll go, and I went and I talked to this woman, Pat Kaluza, and she had this like hippie sort of place in Minneapolis and she read my birth chart and it was astounding and amazing. And one of the things she said to me, she kept going to the father. She kept saying, your father, he's a Vietnam vet or he's troubled or he's, you know, and I kept saying like, oh yeah, my father's not in my life. He's nothing. He's nothing. He's not anything. And she said to me, well, you were wounded. Your father was wounded. And when you have a parent who's wounded, And who hasn't healed his or her wounds, you you as the child, you're wounded in the same place. And so you're going to have to heal that wound. And the way she talked to me about it is that there will be times in your life that you need to ride into battle (laughs) for yourself and you need to teach yourself how to do that. And, you know, I would say that that extends beyond necessarily the father. I think that, you know, if we didn't get that essential sense of self-worth from both parents we need to reckon with that in our adult lives and so with my father i had to heal many things but but the most the biggest one you asked what the most important one i think it was that sense is that that i'm secure and safe in the world and that i'm strong enough to face anything really and to really step into that knowledge, not that you'll be like always brave or always do the right thing or always accept what's happening uh, in a in a sort of graceful way or courageous way, but that at my deepest, deepest, deepest place within me, I believe in the power of my own resilience and ability to survive and persist. And I, and I think that's what the parents give us if they love us well and they love us right. And if we don't get that, we have to find it ourselves in the world.
2: I think that as I was rereading Wild and as I I watched the movie again too which was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I also got this sense that the that your journey was one of finding out if you could rely on yourself, if you could take care of yourself. Pretty extreme <laughs> way of yeah. testing yourself, but but I got the sense that that ability to do that was was also underneath everything else that you were doing.
0: I think so too. And, you know, I think I I, I want to say too, like I think that we all need to do that. Um, you know, obviously somebody like me who had a father who was abusive and not, you know, not the father that anyone wants, and then and then a mother who died. Um, I was really an orphan. And, you know, I had to go and find those things, um, as you say. And yet, I think part of maybe the, the human journey is that like that, I even think of my own kids, teenagers right now who are loved and secure and living in a very happy home and have wonderful lives. And yet what I know about them is that that part of their journey is going to be finding their way. And finding their strength and finding their courage and and also finding their path, you know. And all of those things are made more difficult when we have difficult parents or dead parents or abusive parents. But they're all, it's part of what we have to do as humans. And and that's why, you know, I think so often it wasn't until after I actually wrote Wild that I understood what I had done on that hike is that I'd given myself my own rite of passage, Absolutely. you know, that I'd said, like, you have to go test yourself to see who you are. And and that's those rituals of rites of passage are what, what we've done as humans throughout all time across every culture and, you know, continent and so on and so forth. We don't do that so much anymore. And I think it's a loss. I think most of us would benefit from being asked to find out who we really are, by being put in uncomfortable circumstances or challenging circumstances.
2: When I was doing my research on your childhood and adolescence, I came across a couple of little facts that really were wonderfully surprising. Um, I know that when you were 13, you moved to Aitken County. It was very rural. You lived in a house with your mom and your stepfather. Um, They built the house. And for many years, the house didn't have electricity or running water, didn't have indoor plumbing until after you went to college. But despite all this, Cheryl Strayed, you were a high school cheerleader and the homecoming queen. And so you must you were an overachiever from like day one.
0: Uh-huh. I was.
2: <laughs> I was. So you were very popular in high school. I was not a cheerleader or a homecoming queen and really, <laughs> really looked up to the girls that were. So were you very popular? Were you somebody that was um, just the bell of the ball?
0: So let me explain. My stepfather, uh, who was a carpenter, he was seven years younger than my mom. They they married uh, when I was like 11. And he was working under the table uh, for this roofing contractor. And it was the middle of the winter in Minnesota. There was ice on the roof. He slid off the roof and broke his back. And as I said, we were always flat broke. And he was injured and out of work for more than a year. And my mom at the time was working as an administrative assistant for the like the, the small town attorney in Chaska, Minnesota. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll represent you pro bono. It's not fair. Um, because my stepfather was working under the table, his boss said, Oh, no, I don't need to pay you anything. So by the end of the year, they got a $12,000 check that was the payment for a broken back <laughs> back in 1980 or so. And my mom said, you know, this is our only chance we'll ever uh, have our own home that we own. And let's not buy a home. Let's buy land. So they went to northern Minnesota. Yeah. And we moved to 40 acres of land. We lived really in a tar paper shack, a uh, one room tar paper shack for the first six months. And we built the house ourselves. And it was a lot of work and it was incredibly difficult. And I was a teenager and i wanted to be pretty and popular and not associated with going to the bathroom in an outhouse or taking a bath in a pond which is what i did or taking a bath in a bucket <laughs> which is what i did so yeah my my rebellion in my teen years was to seem to be a version of myself that 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 i wanted to project a sense of success and grace and togetherness and and I you know I wanted to be popular because to be popular is to be loved I wanted people to love me and I should say you know the town uh, I went to school in at McGregor High School it's a very small school so being popular there being the cheerleader there it's a different thing than like some people went to these big schools and it's like a whole other level of of stuff but you know I I was just in this little Podak school and yeah I made myself loved
2: now let's talk a little bit about books because you've written about how as you were growing up books were your religion and mm. you've cited the experience of reading Dalton Trumbo's novel Johnny Got His Gun as a book that first exposed you to the power of inhabiting the life of another human. Yeah. What was that like for you? How did how did that infuse who you were?
0: Have you read that book?
2: I have not. I have not. The book that did well, that for me was Ernest Hemingway's uh, The Old Man and the Sea, which I still remember yes. reading in seventh grade, just feeling the power of, of that experience.
0: Yeah, I had a, that experience with Hemway, Hemingway, too, right around eighth or ninth grade in his short story in another country. And I so Johnny Got His Gun, Dalton Trumbo, really, really powerfully important book. I think I was about 14 when I read it. And it's just, you know, you're inside the... The mind of a man who's had, you know, been deeply injured in the war and lost his limbs, and he's, you know, you're just living in his head and, and, and having his memories and his delusions and his his sorrows and his rages, and you're you're right there inside of him. And I think it was this maybe the first book that the material was so utterly dark and painful and true. That it was, the, it was the first time that I understood what war was, what grief was. You know, I'd learned about things from a distance. And what that novel taught me is how you can inhabit an experience that is so not your own. And, and you know, I loved books long before that. But that was the first time I stepped into one and thought, this is a kind of magic, if you will. This is a kind of portal that, that I guess I've been longing to enter for a long time. Another piece of this that goes way back is always as a young child, I, I always wanted to know what was happening inside of other people's minds, like, really, like, what did they really feel? What did they really think? What was their actual experience of being human? And so in in Dalton Trombo's book, I was like, wow, I've finally been let in to that, mm-hmm. to that secret. You've also said that your sexuality was
2: shaped by the Victorian era erotic (laughs) classic, The Pearl, which is a compilation of serialized porn stories, and you stole it from your mom when you were a teenager. I stole The Godfather and The Crazy Ladies from my parents. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my God! No, trust me. The pearl is so beyond any of that, like you said because that they all were, the pearl is horribly dirty. <laughs> no, it's and and that's all it is. I mean, it's actually <laughs> pornography. It's Victorian pornography, and you know, it's it was actually in existence in in England. It was this, you know, por- these sort of uh, I guess early day zines that were passed around, and it had sat on my mother's bookshelf for really. I think years before I noticed it and suddenly when I was like 13 or 14 I found it. And this is how I, you know, learned everything. <laughs> this is how I learned how to masturbate. I, and I mean I read it all I read it so much that the book really actually fell apart and it was just <laughs> a stack of papers. But it's dirtier it's so unbelievably dirty and you can still buy this book to this day. It's still in print and it's it's really astonishing. It's like all of these unbelievable things that people do to each other. If you ever wonder if smut is like a modern day invention, go read The Pearl, and you'll learn otherwise. <laughs> you also started working at
2: 13. You had a variety yeah. of jobs. You were a janitor's assistant at your high school, waxing floors. You were a waitress at the Dairy Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand you can put a curl on, a t- on the top of a soft serve ice cream cone like a pro.
0: Of course. I worked there. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Growing up poor what you quickly realize is if you ever want anything, you have to earn the money yourself because even though my mom provided for us to the best of her abilities, you know, I wanted things like brand name shoes or, or, Levi jeans, like we would go to Kmart and at the beginning of the school year, and we'd each get like a certain amount of money we could spend. And then that was it. And I was like, I don't want to buy, I want to wear the brands, you know, and my mom would say, I can't afford it. So as soon as I could, you know, I babysat before that. But, but honestly, as soon as I could, I got myself a job. And um, uh, as I was like 13 and a half, I sort of fudged my age. I think you had to be 14 to actually work. But by 13, I worked as a, a full time job as a janitor's assistant in in my school, cleaning the books, the the shelves and the drawers and the desk, getting gum off of things and painting. It was through this program for low income kids. You know, I worked and I earned my money and I bought my stuff. That's that was part of the whole plan. You know, uh, that I would get it myself if it couldn't be provided for me. Sometimes I I talk to my peers who were like going to camp or going to Paris or whatever. And I, I envy them. And yet I also think, wow, uh, the best education I ever had was being a janitor in my high school and then going from that job straight to my job at the Dairy Queen. There was a half hour between those jobs. I would work from 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. as the janitor's assistant. And then I would walk across town to start my 4 p.m. shift at the Dairy Queen that went till 10.30 p.m. I still remember that schedule. And I did that all summer and um, they were minimum wage jobs, but but they were the first lesson I had in really how to be self-sufficient and making it happen, like not expecting others to make it happen for you. Uh, and and I, I, I treasure that. Like, I think I learned more doing that than I would have uh, going to a lovely summer camp. But, you know, we all learned, we all find our way. <laughs> I read
2: that it never occurred to you to attend college outside of Minnesota, and you only applied to one school, the University yeah. of St. Thomas and St. Paul. How come?
0: How come it didn't occur to you that you could go out outside of Minnesota? It never occurred to me. It absolutely never occurred to me that it was possible to leave my state to go to college. Like, to me, the furthest, uh, e- even going to college seemed like going a very far way. And I... Uh, I'll, I'll loop back to answer your question outcome in a minute, but I just want to say I remember uh, the first time that I went to, that I actually went to Harvard and walked around the campus, I was in graduate school. Uh, I was probably 30, and my essay heroine had been selected for best American essays. And uh, they had me come to Cambridge to, to do an event like launching that book because my essay was in it. And I did this reading. Um, and then walked around campus Harvard just I was like I'm right by Harvard I'm just gonna go look and I walked around there and I was overwhelmed with emotion I mean I was like just I felt it was like I had been struck in the head you know and and I was just looking around in wonder but also sorrow and and in a kind of anger because what I realized is that that like It's a good thing I didn't know that I could have gone to school outside of Minnesota, because if I had gone to someplace like Harvard, straight out of my little podunk town, straight out of the life that I, the childhood I'd had and the life I'd led, it would have been like sending me to, you know, like a different, I mean, it was a different world. And, you know, it was just, all I can say is when when you are living in a certain environment among a certain community with certain values and certain ideas about, what city people are, what educated people are, you know, it, it didn't, you know, the, the big dream wasn't like, let's get our kids to Harvard and Yale. Like I never, it, like those didn't even seem like real places to me. They seemed like places in like a Trixie Belden book or something, you <gasps> Trixie know,
2: Belden.
0: I love Trixie Belden, honey, S- her friend. So honey. I
2: know I love oh, honey. Honey.
0: So, you know, for me, it was like, okay, but, but so, so the furthest I could go is to college. And the reason I didn't know, to apply to more than one is because nobody told me. I wasn't folded into anyone's arms when it came to like, well, let's talk about college. Let's talk about your options. Let's talk about the process. I figured out by reading something um, that I had to take the ACT test. Nobody talked to me about it. I paid for it myself. I drove myself there. I took the test. I didn't study for it because I was told you can't study for that test. You just go and it's like an aptitude test. I don't know what score I got because it didn't even matter to me. I just <laughs> took the test, did my best. And I went to, I, I put in my application to one school. And and I d- applied to this one school because it was a small school. I was overwhelmed of thinking like going to like the University of Minnesota it just seemed too big so yeah you know I look back at it and think what was I thinking and all I can say is I just didn't have that information available and and I think we think this is so unique but it's not I mean it's the reality for a lot of kids living in poverty that they don't know the way to college I think there are more programs in place now for people like me but there weren't then I do remember my guidance counselor one time when I was maybe a junior, I had taken some state mandated standardized test and I had done, you know, mediocre on the kind of math portion, but on the verbal portion, I'd gotten like 98 or 99%. And he, I do remember he called me into his office and he said, we were all really shocked by your score on this. Like you scored better than almost everyone who took this test. And I remember thinking the only one who wasn't surprised was me. You showed them. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't say, what do you mean you're surprised? (laughs) I mean. Uh, Yeah, you accepted his surprises. In some ways, like it was, it's about that being the homecoming queen. Like I hid my intelligence. I buried my brains under uh, a rock, even though they were there. Like, you know, so that test revealed who I really was, but I didn't kind of show that in the world until later. For your sophomore year, you
2: transferred to the University of Minnesota and Minneapolis, and you studied English and women's studies. What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point?
0: As a poor kid getting an education, the first goal, and really at first, the only goal was like, you get a job so you can make money. And... I first thought that the only path to that would be journalism. So when I was a freshman, I majored in journalism. And when I transferred to the University of Minnesota, I was like, journalism. But I quick, I took a class uh, really in that first year or so with Michael Dennis Brown, the poet Michael Dennis Brown. And my eyes, I just, everything, pooh, you know, absolutely exploded. And I thought, I, I have to trust this. I have to. You know, I, I I thought that I could sort of funnel my my desire to write into the channel of journalism because it's the job, you know, that, that you can actually get paid to write. But I don't want to do that. Like, I want to really put all of my heart and my faith in, in creative writing. So I switched majors and became an English major. And what I thought I'd do with that is um, become a great American writer. That's what I thought I'd do with it. I was absolutely relentlessly ruthlessly committed to following through and being you know just tr- really really st- you know holding hard onto that thread that was my writing and doing it and doing it and doing it until I succeeded and you know I it's funny I as I say these words you know the 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 female in me <laughs> the woman who is Raised as a girl, it's like, oh, don't say that. Don't say you want to be a great American writer, because that seems cocky or that you're bragging. Or, but I'll tell you, like, that's the thing that got me through is that that, like, again, the intention, the plan, the ambition. If I sort of dithered around and said, well, you know, I hope that this turns out, and I hope I can, you know, publish a story, like, I would never, ever, ever be talking to you right now. I had to just be an absolute relentless warrior. And a motherfucker on behalf of my own self as a writer, Right, like a motherfucker, right? That's right.
2: <laughs> it reminds I mean, of, that's right. It's a, yeah, and it reminds me of of that little mantra you had while you were on your hike. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I will not be afraid.
0: Yeah. Well, and of course, and of course, when did I say I'm not afraid? When, when, when I was. Afraid, yeah. And you know, even to this day, like. Writing is so hard for me. It's so hard for me. And I still have to be a warrior and a motherfucker. I still have to say, Cheryl, you can do this. You're going to do this. And you are not going to give up. You're not going to be second. You're going to go. You're going to you know, (laughs) go all the way to the finish line. And so it's it's a part of that back then. And of course, the women's studies piece, I was a double major, is that I am a feminist. And I have always been a feminist ever since I learned the word when I was five or six, and I just loved centering feminism in my when it came to you know my education, higher learning.
2: In March of nineteen ninety one, when your mom was forty five, you were twenty two. Your mom died of cancer, and you've said that your mother's death was in many ways um, your genesis story and the start of what you called your wild years. And you've said that for you, using drugs or having a lot of sex or any sort of reckless behavior was about love, was about trying to find love in this weird way, trying to show the world this woman's life meant so much that I'm going to ruin mine to honor her. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that destructive thing that we do. Why do you think we hurt ourselves when we're
0: hurt? Mm. Wow! Again, you you with the big questions, Debbie. <laughs> I kind of want to say I'm sorry, but I'm like sorry not sorry. It's so it's so it's so deep and so big that the, the and layered the answers. Why do we hurt ourselves when we're suffering? Why do we self destruct when, yeah, when we feel like we've been ruined? Um, I think it's a couple of things i think one of the things is it's a signal it's a signal to the people around us that we're saying help me even if we with our words are saying like oh no i'm fine just leave me alone I mean, and in so many ways that's you know when when you turn to drugs for example you know that's a way of of pushing others away from you right and yet what i was so clearly trying to do i can see is to be like help me help me help me And it's also a kind of test. So it's a signal. I need help. It's a test. Is there anyone out there who loves me enough to help me? I also think in my case there was this sort of division within me, or this polarity that was the that's almost like it's almost like mythic in its. You know, when I think about it and when I interpret it this way, is like the mother, the the good mother who's been taken from me and the and the bad father the dark father who abandoned me you know if i can't be the the woman my mother raised me to be that ambitious generous life you know light-filled person maybe i can be the the junk the pile of shit the darkness that my father nurtured in me there was something that i had to figure out about those primal relationships um, that I had to rage against and heal and understand and revise. And I think that a lot of us um, have to do that. You know, I think that a lot of people who are suffering, and certainly people who've written to me as sugar, you know, they have a problem. They write with the problem, right? They're like, this is my question. This is my thing. But really the problem is is that deep, deep river that's flowing beneath all the troubles that that subterranean channel um that uh, that is your parents, that is those early stories you received, your losses and your gains and your wounds and your sorrows, that you have to you have to heal them. And sometimes, you know, healing is an ugly thing. Sometimes healing is destruction. Sometimes healing is turning away. Sometimes healing is a kind of rage and anger. you know, and I think that for me, it was just like I had to pass through everything. So the, the, the image that always comes to mind to me is one of total destruction. When I saw that I was going to lose everything after my mom died, and I did. My family also really fell apart and was lost. When I understood that that was what was going to happen and that I couldn't make it not happen, that's when I really turned to heroin. That's when I was like, okay, if if the house is going to burn down, I'm going to go like the p- the piece of this that in some ways I can have control over is I'm going to actually burn the whole the whole you know the whole land down like the whole homestead. The hard thing about that is of course some people stay there. They get right. lost there. They're walking through the the ashes forever. And and luck and I'm I'm so grateful that that wasn't my fate. You know that that I had to do that stuff in order to realize that um that I wasn't the person my father raised me to be. My father didn't raise me. I was the person my mother raised me to be. And the best thing I could do and this is why I said that so much of that stuff was about love is I realized like I was trying to show the world, listen, this amazing woman is gone and I am suffering. I wanted to, you know, with my own life demonstrate how 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 gigantic that loss was. And what I realized is the only way I could do that, the absolute only way I could do that was to, to make good on my intentions, to make good on my ambitions, to be the woman my mother raised me to be, as I said in Wild, um, to become, to become. And, and she didn't get to all the way or as long as I hoped she would, but but that I would have to just simply live my life and, and try to honor her with it. And what's so crazy and cool and beautiful about that is I did. I mean people all over the world know my mom's name.
2: Yeah, they do. It's interesting you brought her to life through your words and, you know, she brought you to life through her life. It's a really nice symmetry there.
0: It's crazy, you know, it's I lost her I was the same age when she died as she was when she was pregnant with me. So I lost her at the same age that she, I that I came into her life. Right. I just want to say I don't wanna in any way glorify, you know, the destructive things we do because they are destructive and like I said, people people get can you know, their their lives they're lost there. Right. And so in no way am I saying like, well, you know, you have to do this to get to there. You know, I wish that I I wish that I didn't have to go into the darkness. But, you know, I was always trying to move in the in the direction of love and and, you know, and as you say, I did write about her. And, and so not only is it cool, like I brought her to life, but I also got what I needed, which mm-hmm. was, remember when I said back then that in some ways it was a signal, like, help me, I, I'm in pain, I, I'm suffering. I, I felt so alone in my grief. And then when I wrote about it and told the truth about it, how savage it was, I felt like, okay, everyone's going to think I'm crazy. But instead, what everyone thought was me too to this day, you know, to this day, really now, you know, hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people around the world, maybe millions of people around the world are saying, I know how you feel because I felt that way too. And, and I'm suddenly not alone in my grief. Yeah. And I'm always shocked by that. You know, every, every Mother's Day or, you know, you know, very often on Mother's Day, I'll make a post on Instagram or something about mother loss. And, and i've gotten to the point where it's not so much for me anymore it's not like me saying oh i miss my mom i do miss my mom but i like that i'm doing it because i know that other people need me they need th- to hear the story of that loss so that they're less alone in it and, and and you know so in so many ways like i can't get my mom back through my writing but i can get love through my writing and i can get love specifically in that place of loss if that makes sense Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean,
2: I am very grateful looking back on my life and maybe this is synthesized happiness. I'm not entirely sure in in terms of what it has given me in terms of my ambition or my um, creativity or even just my sense of the world. But I also deeply, deeply regret the pain that i caused others with my own self destructiveness and and oh. that's one of the biggest regrets that i have you know what what i put other people through in that journey to be who i am and where i am now um but i also know that i i couldn't have survived in many ways without that destructiveness and that testing of of who i was as i revised myself so to speak yeah do you think that part of that revision for you was to change your name?
0: Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was born Cheryl Nyland, as you said. And then I got married young. I was Cheryl Nyland Littig. We, we both hyphenated our names because we were trying to be radical and feminist and cool. <laughs> which it was a weird thing to do back then in yeah those, well, it's, those it's
2: interesting I have a, my, my dearest dearest cousin who's practically my sister did that too and her daughter has the hyphenated name and says that that's the worst thing that they ever could have done to her <laughs>
0: like yeah giving her two long names that don't even fit on a it's just an ID card well and then nobody and and like nobody remembers both names they'll just decide <laughs> right. to call you And, you know, people will just be like, okay, whatever. I can't figure out your name, you know? And so, yeah, when I got divorced right before I went to hike on the Pacific Crest Trail in uh, 1995, I was getting divorced in like 94, 95. I realized that, yeah, so I had to set my life on a new course, which was really the old course, which was the course, you know, way back, you know, when I was like hiding Jane Eyre in 10th grade or whatever, you know, those plans for myself, I took a little detour, uh, did some other things. And then I was like, "Okay, this is, you know, life. My mother's dead. My first marriage is over. This man I loved, but it got married too young. And I'm an orphan and I need to make my life. I'm going to make my life. And part of that, obviously, for a writer is about language. And Cheryl Nyland just didn't feel like me. And so I came up with my own last name, Cheryl Strayed, which is so funny to me now. So I've been Cheryl Strade longer than I was anything else now. I'm 51. People still say like, oh, but Cheryl Strayed's not your real name. And I'm like, yes, it is. It is funny <laughs> to me. Like if I had married a dude named you know Joe Strade, nobody would say, well, Cheryl Strayed's not your real name. It's real if it's tethered to a man that you're tethered to, but it's not real if it's tethered to your own vision of who you are. And a lot of people, they don't even have ill intent when they say it's not your real name. It's just that like, it's it's their their way of how we're
2: socialized. I know, it's horrible. And so
0: what I hope to do is to try to, um, yeah, to get people to think differently about it. Cheryl Strayed is the realest name I ever had.
2: So you talked about your hike along the Pacific Crest Trail. You were 26 when you embarked on this solo three-month, 1,100-mile hike. If you knew that there were people listening who were considering taking the same hike, what would you share with them? What would you tell them? What advice might you give
0: them? Well, absolutely go. If you have any, whether it's the same hike as mine or, or any long hike, if you have any desire to do this, do it. Okay? I've talked to so many people who have taken long walks and long hikes, and, and all of them say, oh, that's the best thing I ever did for myself. Because it is walking, especially walking a long way for many days on end, day after day, it's, it's, uh, it's a deeply, deeply uh, challenging thing. So you, you, get, you, you gain your sense of your own strength and your own ability to endure difficulty, uh, monotony, uh, pain. <laughs> and of course, what happens on the outside, one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, also happens on the inside. That, you know, it turns out for me, you know, this the way to heal anything is to keep going and to keep going with humility and faith and a sense of optimism, even when it looks and feels really hard. And, you know, I just I love this idea of the body teaching us what what the soul and the spirit and the heart needs to know. And that's what happens on a long walk. That that's exactly what happens on a long walk. I mean, I can't say enough what a, what a powerfully humbling and healing act that was. As I was
2: rereading the book and watching the movie again, I thought that it was very likely the last moment or almost the last moment that we weren't all walking around checking our email and texting on our cell phones. And it yeah. seems unimaginable to me to consider hiking 1,100 miles in near solitude without a phone on the entire, well, the phone off the
0: entire time. I mean, it's just not even comprehensible. What would people say? Well, and that's, at the, really, this was 1995. Right. And I, I didn't realize until, you know, I was sort of midway through Wild that I realized, oh, I'm I'm actually writing a kind of historical memoir. Right about a world that is no longer that a, that a world that is now past that our experience of the wilderness is now one where first of all we can just research everything online you know where does that trail begin and end where's the water where's the you Google know labs, I right you know and that was one of one <laughs> of the things and of course in, in wild I did make comque of like unpreparedness or whatever but the other piece of this I, I want to say is that I prepared to the extent that I could, that it there wasn't the internet. You know, I went to the Minneapolis Public Library and said, you know, what books do you have on the Pacific Crest Trail? And they had one and it was the book I already purchased at REI. It wasn't, it wasn't like things were available, you know, you just had to go and see how it was. Yeah, I was absolutely alone. I was the first eight days of my hike, I didn't even see another person. What I learned is that that would be You know, a regular thing like that. I would many, many times go three, four, five days without another seeing another person. There was no way to contact anyone except if I came upon a payphone, or if I sent them a letter. Right. I'm I'm so grateful for that world. (laughs) I mean, I'm so grateful that I took my hike during that time because I think had I not done that, I would have spent a lot of time tweeting at people, Instagram, right,
2: connecting with people, pictures, the fox. I mean.
0: Yeah, and getting feedback from people. Right. And not just sitting in my solitude. I mean, that's the thing about that that kind of deep solitude is it's just like, it's just you and there's nothing to do but reckon with yourself. There's nothing to do but have that conversation with yourself in your head. There's nothing to do but allow those memories to emerge. By the time I was finished with my hike, I honestly felt like I had thought about Everything I remembered in my whole life, every relationship, every person, what a therapeutic experience. (laughs) Monster
2: was the name of your backpack, which at its heaviest weighed nearly 70 pounds. Even Even at its lightest, it was 50 pounds. And making yourself suffer in a physical way kind of feels like the opposite of fun. Um, and I read that you said that the act of remembering your suffering can become pleasure afterwards. And I wanted to know, like, how so? How does that become pleasure?
0: I, I'm such a believer. I call it retrospective fun, okay? <laughs> right. And and this is the advice, too, I'd give someone wanting to take a long hike, is you just have to, or, or really any kind of journey, you just have to acknowledge that that very often the best things we do are painful and complicated and difficult and exhausting and require us to be out of our comfort zone and to accept difficult things. Right? If the journeys we take are just like exactly how we imagined they'd be and planned they'd be and and everything was idyllic and blissful and there was no there was no sort of uh, difficulty, we would be like, yeah, that that was that was fun, but. You know, there's there's nothing about it, right? right. There's no texture to it. Yeah, no and grit. <laughs> no grit. And and I think that the, the grittier an experience is, the more it teaches us. We never, ever, ever forget the lessons we learn the hard way. Uh, I began a backpacking novice. I became a backpacking expert. I thought that I couldn't do that. And I did. I over and over and over again said to myself, I can't go on. I can't. And I always did. And then that becomes part of who you are. It becomes part of the story you tell yourself. So then, you know, 10 years later, you're in labor, as I was trying to give birth to my 11-pound baby boy. And I was thinking, oh. I can't do this. And I, what the, what the deepest voice in me said, you know you can. You yeah. know you can. So I think that that's, you know, the piece of, of seeking out things that aren't necessarily the most fun in the moment, but will be the fun things in retrospect. And, and the funny things too, like my, my, one of my theories is about travel is that None of us wants to get like terrible diarrhea in Guatemala, but you know if you do, or, or or Cambodia or wherever. But if you do, they will be the funniest stories you have. Oh yeah, about your travels. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. And so it's so like just embrace the hard times. You know, yeah. I think that that's really what we're seeking. Um, is to be to, sh- to get to see ourselves in all kinds of lights. And travel yeah. offers us that. Nine days after
2: your hike and a few days after your 27th birthday, you met your husband through someone who came to the yard sale you had selling your hiking gear to raise a little bit of money to live on. Um, several years later, you married him, you had two children. Do you think that this sort of new life, big quotes, was the gift you got at the end of a long struggle? Do you think it, it was just luck? Tell, tell me about how you view that sort of moment in time where you come back and everything changes.
0: Well, you know, I think it's it's a combination of things, right? Like luck is always, luck is always a factor in everything. You know, how, how, how do we ever know that we're going to be standing there when that person walks up and you say hello and, and then something is born of that, right? How how I think of Brian's life and my life and thinking about how you know how did our paths ever get to cross? How does how did your path cross with Roxanne's? It's it's a I went after thing. her. I
2: chased her. I did. I, ta- right? I chased but, her.
0: But <laughs> further back than that, Debbie, like beyond oh, yeah. even like th- yeah. that you could even I mean, it's just fascinating, right? Like yeah. of all the directions your life could have gone in hers, you know. I, I just yes. think it's a cool thing to think about. So some of that is just luck and and of course a lot of it is that by the time I met Brian, I was okay. You know, I was in a place that I was able to see more clearly again and be more kind to myself and to be truer to my nature and truer to my ambition and my vision. I was doing again what I'm here to do. And when you're doing that, and then you meet somebody else who's doing that, it's like really good timing, you know? So in so many ways, it is the gift, you know, getting Brian is the gift of doing all of that wandering and searching and finding. And it's not the end of the story, of course. It's like, it it wasn't like, well, now I'm just like all great and everything. and, And then, you know, 25 years later, we're just, here we are in the same place. I mean, we've both struggled and grown and gone through all kinds of things, right? But, you know, to make yourself ready for that kind of relationship, um, I I wasn't walking the trail to do that, but that right. was one of the outcomes of it. Yeah,
2: you moved to Portland. You got a job waiting tables. You started working full time writing your first novel, Torch, and you then went to graduate school to Syracuse University and got a master of fine arts in fiction writing, so you could actually finish the book. Why? What made you decide to do that? What made you feel like that would help you get to that moment that where the where the book would be finished?
0: Yeah, it was it was mostly financial. And some, uh, also just like the logistics of of uh, giving myself real time to write. So, all through my twenties, I was a waitress. I was a youth advocate. I was a vegetable picker in an organic farm. I like I was an EMT. I did all kinds of things, but what I was really doing was writing. That was my real work. And it was I had this big student loan to pay off. It was exhausting uh, always to be just living hand to mouth and struggling financially while trying to write. And and I sort of always thought like okay my my first novel will of course be published and done and everything by the time i'm 30 i think sometimes of that scene in cinderella where like the mice come and like make her that dress like do you know that scene i'm talking about They, they scurry about and they grab like some the curtains and the sash and they magically make her a dress i was kind of hoping that that's how my novel would would be made that i would one day just walk into um up to my lap, my not my I didn't have a laptop up, I would I would appear at my computer and there would be the novel. Yeah. <laughs> that, That's sort that of what nice I thought my life would be. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so nice? Yeah. And um but I so I just thought, okay, as I was approaching 30, I was like, okay, this hasn't been done yet. And here are the reasons why. One is I'm always having to work full time to pay the bills. And two, you know, it's hard to have that kind of time and focus when you're working full time. So graduate school kind of solved that problem for me. And I only looked into I only applied to graduate schools that Um, You know, with the idea that I would only go if I were offered a full a full fellowship or scholarship and tuition remission and that it wouldn't put me further in student loan debt. And so I applied to a bunch of those programs and was accepted into to all of them. And I chose Syracuse and off to Syracuse. I went and it was really there that I that I was able to write that first book. I I wasn't finished with it by the end of graduate school, but I was close enough that then I just stuck with it and finished it uh, within, you know, about a year after I finished grad school.
2: You wrote this about the experience of writing Torch. If my kids read my journals when I die, what they're going to find is that if they didn't know that Torch had been published, they would think that I had failed to write my novel because the whole journal is me lamenting about how I can't write and what a failure I am and all of this negative stuff about how I can't do it and I'm not doing it and I try to do it, but it sucks. That's the narrative. Then meanwhile, what I was doing was writing my book. So when the same thing happened with Wilde, I was like, oh, this is how it feels to write a book. I'm writing a book because I feel like a failure. Do you, do you still, Cheryl, do you still feel that way when you write?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so much. I mean, so much to the point, to the extent that even just you reading that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, I needed to hear that because (laughs) I feel that right now. I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. Yeah, this sense of doom and doubt and like, I can't do this and you know, all that freak out. But that is, that is, I, I beat up on myself a lot when it comes to this stuff. And, and then I just put one foot in front of the other and keep going and get the work done. And that that is my process. Um, for better or worse, I wish that I had this kind of sense of like, oh my gosh, another day where I get to be living the dream.
2: Tara's just part of the process, right?
0: Yeah. And and I mean, and sometimes within my writing, like I'll go into this great zone and I'm like, oh my gosh, why was I complaining? I love this. This is amazing and fun and what I love to do. But but I do have to kind of weed through a lot of doubt and fear to get there.
2: Torch was published in 2006. At that time, you had two children under the age of two, 18 months apart. Uh, you started writing Wild in 2008, 13 years after you completed the hike. Initially, you thought it would be a collection of essays, Um your second book, what what changed?
0: Yeah, well, you know, the reason I thought it would be a collection of essays is I thought there is no way in hell that I can write a book while having two little babies and being in financial stra- stress and you know all of this. I just thought I can't write another book, and I'd, at that point, I had started writing essays and had published essays in various places, and I saw that like those essays together kind of told the story of my twenties, and the missing story was my hike on the PCT. So I was like, all I have to do is write the essay about my hike and I've got a book, you know, because publishers are going to be so excited about publishing my collection of essays. <laughs> but anyway, I thought I'd try. And what happened is I started writing and then it went on and on and on and on. And I was like, oh, I have a bigger story to tell. And and really... I didn't know that until I was doing the writing because I found the bigger story when I was writing. And, and by the bigger story, I mean, the story that exceeds the kind of like, oh, here's, you know, here's my interesting journey or here's the big loss I suffered, you know, that it, that I knew that I needed to find a universal thread, that I needed to have, that the my journey and my loss and my experience would be, have the potential to be expressed in a way that other people would see themselves in it. And it took some writing for me to, to figure out how to do that or to figure out that that was there.
2: You said that being a memoirist is about learning how to re-enter previous versions of yourself. Yeah. How do you go back into that previous version while still maintaining who you are?
0: Well, you know, you enter the magic of writing. That's that's what's so cool about it. Is So what I mean by that is this. is the only way for me to write about my real heartbreak over the decision to end my first marriage is to abandon the woman I am now who says, oh my gosh, I was too young to get married and he was great and everything, but it's a good thing we broke up because now we're both married to other people and we're happy, you know? So leave that person at the door and and start writing your way into the person who was in love with this man, truly, and who also felt like she ha- could not stay with him, who had to break his heart and her own in order to live the life that she, for whatever inexplicable reason, that was still kind of, um, you know, beyond her explanation, had to trust herself to do that. And so I went in and re-inhabited that. And and as I was writing for example, that scene in in Wild where my husband and I are deciding to get divorced and then we get divorced and we're saying goodbye to each other. You know, I was just sobbing as I was writing it. Mm. And even though it's actually not sad, like it's actually not sad to me now. It's a memory of sadness that I that I re-inhabited. This was really made alive to me. Um, I was on the set a lot when we were making the movie. So I was there like every day and, you know, really involved in everything. And there's this scene in the movie and in the book where me and my ex-husband, we've just mailed off, you know, our divorce papers and we're standing on the street and we're talking to each other and crying and embracing for the last time. And it's very emotional in the book. I'm crying, you know, I'm like, it's sad. And then, you know, I'm standing there with Reese Witherspoon Right before she's going to walk into the street with Thomas Sadowski, who plays my ex-husband, and they're going to begin shooting this scene. And she suddenly looks at me and she just, Reese just starts sobbing. She was getting ready for that scene. And they they go into the street and they shoot this. And I'm standing next to the director. I'm watching this on the camera. And I noticed that some people on the crew were kind of gathered around me. And a couple of them sort of put their hand on my back and put their hand on my shoulder to, like, comfort me. Wow. and. I thought, oh, okay. I I I it was so clear, crystal clear to me because I was watching that scene and I wasn't crying because it's not sad anymore. But when I watched the scene of my mom dying, I cried. Oh, that's because it's still can, sad. Yeah. I mean it's you know? just and that's it doesn't, beyond sad. And it doesn't mean that one thing isn't sad and one thing is. It means that, that there are different kinds of sorrow. And some of them are sorrow, are sad in the moment, and others are sad forever. And, you know, so I think that's a really important thing that I try to remember still in my life, that it's like, is this a, a sorrow that I'm going to carry with me forever? Or is it a sorrow that is like a crucible, and I have to endure it, and then I will be better for it? That I'm, you know, that's what I, when I wrote "As Sugar, you've got to be brave enough to break your own heart. I was talking about exactly that thing, where, you know, I had to make a decision that caused me and another person pain but I'm better for it and it's not sad anymore it was it was actually the the golden key that opened the door to to my liberation and there was loss in that but but there was more gain you know it became a gift in the end and so you know I think that um for me just as a writer you know what you have to do is go back and be that person you know go, that person before you got the golden key in your hand or before you walked through that door or before you made that next move and and just remember who that is and and through the writing try to enter that consciousness again and uh that does feel like magic to me to to go back and be like what was Cheryl thinking when she was 19 and decided to marry that guy what was she thinking? It seems foreign to me now. What was Cheryl thinking when she thought there was only one college to apply to in her, st- and and she had to stay in her state? It's like, oh, well, that's not the Cheryl I am anymore, but it is the Cheryl I was. And she was informed by all these things, and to remember what they are is is, it, is not only you got to do that to write memoir, but it's a really cool thing to do in your life, you know, for your life. Like, uh, very often, I think how memoir writing is almost like the process of therapy, right? Where you go back there and you say, well, who was that person? And why did she do this and think this and love these people and lead these people? And there's always an answer if you're willing to dig for it. It's so interesting to see
2: how you change over time without even knowing you've changed over time. And as I've gotten older, I'm gonna be 59 this year and I still, and I, I can't help but think, I still feel like, I'm 25. I still feel like I'm 35. I I don't understand how this happened. And then I'll go back and read journals from that time, 25 or 35. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a completely different human being. It doesn't even make sense that I'm the same person that that is. Um, Do you ever have that sense going back to read the journals in in remembering who you are or who you were?
0: So I kept a journal all through, like, basically from about 18 or 19 until uh, shortly after I became a mother, and and after I became a mother, I only wrote in my journal a couple of times. But um, but so you know, basically from like eighteen to thirty five or thirty six, I have really a record, almost daily record of my life. And I want to just sit and there, and they're paper journals, you know, that I wrote in. Yeah. When I go back and read them, I think, what? Like, who was I? What was I thinking? But I also, I guess, more than anything, think, wow. I always knew. I'm I'm more amazed that that I actually did have that sense of like direction or inner wisdom. I didn't always have the ability to trust it. But I knew, mm. like, I always knew who I was, and what the right way was, even if I was confused and not brave enough to trust it or to, you know, take take my own best advice. But, you know, it wasn't like I was just like this completely different person and now I'm just like, I mean, it, so, so in, in so many ways, it's like revisiting myself, you know, it's, it's not so much foreign, it's, it's more like a familiar visitation.
2: While you were working on Wild, you also started writing your column, Dear Sugar, for The Rumpus. You were mentoring students at the Attic Institute in Portland. You were teaching workshops at universities, writing for magazines. But you and Brian, your husband, who's a documentary filmmaker, were, as you put it, epically broke. Um, you were, as they say, the classic starving artists. Yes, um, and I also thought it was interesting that while you were writing Dear Sugar, you were giving people advice, and in Wild, you weren't. But people have read it that way, and I'm wondering how you feel about that—that that whole sort of notion of advice giving. I know you've referred to self help work as intellectually mushy, um, <laughs> and 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 I, I think I think that too. But I do think that people look for that in work even when it's not there for their own needs.
0: Yeah. When I was writing Wild, it never occurred to me that anyone would be uh, experience it as inspiring. You know, I, I, I was really just trying to write the truest, rawest, realist story about the that experience, about my grief, about my finding my way on this long walk, about the experience I had in the wilderness. And so, yeah, people do experience that in a, in a like, well, what's the message of Wild? I'm like, ah, you know, I don't, I, the message is whatever you think, whatever truths you find in yourself when you read it. But, it, you know, it even goes back to Torch, my novel. Uh, I realized after it was published that people were so experiencing this as a book that felt life-saving people felt consoled by it and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you wrote all that stuff about, you know, the stepfather, because that's what happened to me too, or that's what happened to my family too, or, you know, and people identifying with it. And of course, like, I guess that doesn't really surprise me because that's what I've taken from literature too. That's what I meant when books were by religion is I felt saved by them. Like I felt seen by them. So, you know, to me, I'm always sad, like in airports, there, there are many of these, um, kind of com- little convenience stores and airports will have these little turnstiles that are, they're like inspirational or self-help, like that, that it's, in the, and there are never books, there's never like novels there. There's never, you know, tiny, beautiful things there. It's all these very specific things that are very instructive, like here's your problem, here's what you need to do. And I find that the most helpful literature when it comes to like what real self-help is, is things like I don't know, Jane Eyre, Mm -hmm. you know, Alice Munro's short stories. There I am in Alice Munro's short stories. There I am in Toni Morrison's Beloved. There I am in, you know, Mary Oliver's poems or, you know, those Yeah, I think that's why people like Raymond
2: Carver so much, too.
0: That's right. Raymond Carver. Name my son after Raymond Carver. There, there, There are my people there are my people in a Raymond Carver short story. So yeah, you know, I I, I didn't intend um, for those things to be self-help. And frankly, even Sugar, when, when Tiny Beautiful Things came out, I was like, it was in the self-help section of many bookstores. I was like, what? What? So I think of myself as an accidental self-help writer, because of course, of course, Dear Sugar columns are self-help. And yet what they also are is literature. And to me, I'm not so interested in, you know, whether there's a, a bright line between those two things or not. Because in fact, literature has been the thing that has been the, the most helpful to me when it comes to helping myself.
2: I It feels like you found your voice during your time writing Dear Sugar. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that Wild, so Wild and Dear Sugar were written on top of each other. So I became Sugar, like a week after I finished the first draft of Wild. Then I started writing sugar. And then over that time that I was first writing sugar that first year or so I was also doing the revision of Wild. And you know, I think that I was like absolutely a real writer and a solid writer before that. But I think that to me, I wouldn't so much say I found my voice during that time, but rather I found my authority. My like that my voice gained an oh, authority, yes. you know? <laughs> so like when I read Torch, which I haven't read in ages. You know, I read it and I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see, like, uh, that's me. That's me becoming a writer. That's me being a writer. But in some ways, it's also me trying to kind of, f- to really experiment with like, well, who exactly am I? And do I have the confidence to be only that? To not also try to be like Mary Gateskill or Alice Monroe or Raymond Carver, to just be Cheryl Strait. And I feel like in Wild, I I then was experienced enough as both a writer and a person where it is only me, like, you know, obviously, all my influences are always inside of me. But they weren't, they weren't in any way, guideposts for me in any kind of technical way, the way they were in torch, like, I just decided to trust my own light. And then with sugar, you know, I stepped into it more, because of course, I had finished the first draft of wild. So everything I learned in wild was then brought into that those dear sugar columns.
2: Your next book, Tiny Beautiful Things, was published in 2012 and contains advice on love and life from your Dear Sugar columns. And Nia Dallas adapted the book for the stage and played the part of Dear Sugar in the sold-out 2016 production at the Public Theater in New York City, which I saw which was just magnificent. Oh, uh, thank you. I loved it so much. The play was directed by Thomas Kale, who co-created and directed Hamilton. He's also been a guest on Design Matters and somebody who I absolutely adore. Um, how involved were you in the production?
0: Yeah, I was really involved. So from the very beginning, it was this thing uh, that that Tommy Kale and Nia Fardell and also Marshall Heyman and I, Cooked up together. We met a few times around a table for a few a few days in New York, and first of all, just talked about what it could be, what it might look like, and then Nia uh, had you know really went at the book and made it into a script, and we read it out loud to each other and and hashed that out and talked it out, and then started they started rehearsing, and you know it was such a cool process to be part of because you know with adaptation in both cases with the movie and the play i early on decided okay the book is mine the book is what i made and then now this is other artists essentially bringing their own lives and visions and thoughts to the work and making something new it's so i'm i'm not the i'm kind of like the fairy godmother of it you know i'm like the great grandmother of it or something so i wish it well uh and i weigh in when i think it matters but i also really just Honor that relationship, I guess that 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 uh, these other artists get to have their own relationship to the work and make something new of it. And so I was there every step along the way, and um, but also just really uh, bearing witness to that creation too. And it's now when we sort of get back to normal again, normal in
2: quotes life. Um, it is a play that's going and traveling in regional theaters and so forth, right?
0: Yeah, so it's not traveling. What it's doing is each different theater companies across the nation and and in Canada as well, you know, are making uh, productions of it. So, you know, it's not one cast that's going around from theater to theater, that, that, that each different theater licenses the play and makes it. And last year, in 2019, it was one of the top 10 most produced plays in the nation. And we were looking, you know, it was looking strong for 2020, too. And what happened is, of course, the pandemic, and then now we can't gather. And, and so that's been really kind of a bummer. Um, but I hope that when we can gather again, the tiny beautiful things will be seen on many stages. Yes. I understand you've been
2: at a sort of crossroads now as different opportunities have come your way, weighing the reasons to do it, weighing the reasons not to do it. And you've stated it's not about the number of things on the list. It's about the weight of those things. And almost always you think that the things that mean and matter the most really come down to one question. And that question is, what do you really want to do? And I wanted to see if you could help me understand how to know when something is the thing you really want to do. Oh gosh. Again,
0: with a hard (laughs) (laughs) question. So for me, that deepest wanting, it's not that it's the easiest thing to do. It's, it's the thing about which you feel like I can make, I can create something that feels larger than me if I decide to do this. So if I, if I write a book and not only is it a a deep and true expression of some deep and true things I want to put into the world, if it's not only that, and then it becomes also, something that is meaningful to others that's a big thing to contribute to the world and I think that for me that sense of like rightness or a sense of like if this mission is fulfilled will it extend beyond my small little life like I feel that as I feel that as a sort of powerful call one of the
2: things that you are doing that I think is so, so helpful right now is hosting a new podcast yeah. from the New York Times titled Sugar Calling. How would
0: you describe it for our listeners? So sugar calling was conceived at the at when we all really that first week or so when most of us in the United States were... Holding up and our states were going on, you know, shelter at home orders and so forth. And uh, a lot of people online were saying, Cheryl, you know, we need advice. We need dear sugar to come back. And uh, Lisa Tobin, who's the the executive producer at the New York Times in the audio department was like, how about bringing sugar back? And I said, well, you know, I don't feel like my job right now is to give people advice about how to face this moment, because I think So many of the questions would be so kind of universal, you know. Instead, how about we do it instead of giving advice, that I go seek wisdom and I seek wisdom from people, you know, the source of so much wisdom. Uh, Books, as I said, have been the place where I found myself and found wisdom and insight. So, how about I talk to authors and specifically authors over the age of sixty, that that age group, not only being wise elders, but also the, the the group that we've been hearing over and over again. Are the most at risk of dying of this virus, and so I I just decided to reach out to the literary elders who, you know, who who have informed me: Uh, George Saunders, who was my mentor at Syracuse University; Pico Iyer; Amy Tan; uh, Joy Harjo; uh, I Judy is the most recent, yeah, Judy (laughs) Bloom. It really is just a pop up podcast. We I did eight episodes, and then now I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a break and come back maybe, but it really was amazing to me how many listeners said, thank you. I needed that. And I think it's just a calming force to just simply hear from people like, yeah, you know what? Times have been hard before and I survived them. Times are hard now. We will survive this. And I love that that's what the feeling that people get when they listen to the podcast.
2: What is it like for you to be the person asking the questions instead of answering them?
0: Oh, it's so fun. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like, I'm like seriously I was like what do you mean I get to call Judy Bloom like Judy Bloom <laughs> It's like Judy you know I just the way I described like when I went to Harvard and when I was 30 I was like this this is such a far off land I didn't even imagine it was real like that's that's kind of how Judy Bloom is it's like okay wait she's an actual person okay because right. so for so long I mean that woman taught me every she taught me what everything. an erection was she taught yeah. me everything she taught me so much you know you you are calling writers, all of
2: whom are over 60, and um, you've declared that there's something that's built into our language wherein we associate old as an insult. Why Why do you think that is?
0: Uh, because we are such an ageist culture. It was really interesting when I was trying to come up with the descriptive language for this podcast and even asking the first guests, you know, like, like, oh, are they going to be offended if I say oh writers over 60 because it's like oh is or are, 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 am I in some ways putting them into a category that you know people don't want to you know they don't want to be in that category and I you know I, I it was it was just fascinating to me how um we do see you know if, if somebody calls me an old woman very often like that feels a little bit like a slight insult doesn't it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and, yeah and you know I was at the same time that I was um thinking about this like how to talk about the fact that I'm talking to elders um I was looking again at this this book of poetry that my mother gave me a long time ago right before she died actually by the Japanese poet Shintaro Tanikawa and I'm probably saying it wrong um but that's that's how it's said phonetically and I was reading some of his poetry and it's an English translation from the Japanese and there are times where the English refers to old man and old woman. And there's a translator's note. And it says that there's not a word in English for the exact word in Japanese. In Japanese, old man and old woman, that word is, is actually a very respectful word. It's actually a very kind of reverent word. And then when it's translated to English, it sounds like an insult, like old man, old woman. Hey, old man. Hey, old woman. And I was like, oh, that's the problem. It's like it's it's a language problem, but it's a it's a what language, of course, follows culture. And so it's like, you know, just like the word fat, you know, like people are all confused about the word fat now because people are reclaiming that word and saying, Mm -hmm. look, it's you've decided that fat is a negative word. I'm going to say I'm fat and you know when we did this on the Dear sugars podcast we had lindy west on and we got letters people were like why why are you referring to her as fat that's so insulting it's like no no she's saying she's fat and she's not insulted you know it's yeah. it's and so it's complicated i mean i do think that we it, it made me really awake to the fact that like we we do not i mean i knew this before but wow we do not treasure and value our elders we we don't you know we we consider age something that we should sort of avoid mentioning and um, I think, yeah, there is wisdom in age. People who are, are over the age of 60 have been around f- longer than many other people. and they have something interesting to tell us. Judy Bloom is 82. you know, she has a whole lot of time to look back on and reflect on and t- you know she has so much to offer us because of that experience.
2: Oh yeah, she's a, she's a national treasure at this point.
0: She is and why but why have we construed that to be? Yeah oh, she's, you know, people who are older are sort of not with the times or they're out of step or they're, they're you know, even kind of stupid, right? You know, that they don't have the kind of clarity or quickness that young people do. And that's just a bad story we've told ourselves, I think.
2: Well, thank you for helping to change
0: that. <laughs> it's been so cool to be like, no, I'm talking to the old people and it's not an insult. It's a, it's a beautiful, joyous thing. Cheryl, I have two last questions for you.
2: Okay. The first is something that um i was really heartened to read about i understand that sandwiches are problematic for
0: you <laughs> of course they are sandwiches are just like chaos you know machines right they're just like absolutely willy-nilly see i know you're my sister i know you that i know you also feel this way like yeah, the, things I, have I, to be orderly. Absolutely.
2: Every bite has to be perfect.
0: Not only do they have to be orderly. Yes. But that's it. the whole goal of a sandwich for me is to make every bite as much like the the, the previous bite as possible. Yep. Okay. Uniform. Consistency. Mm-hmm. So you put the, you know, whatever, whatever you're putting on it, it has to be uniformly applied everywhere. Absolutely. Burritos also sometimes have this problem. If people don't do the burrito correctly. Yeah. It's just tacos. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So this is
2: my last question. Cheryl, what is the thing you want to do most next?
0: Finish my next book. I I really am ready to do that. Uh, so Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things were published within four months of each other in 2012. And basically, my life was just an absolute, you know, <laughs> like it was just like a volcano and I was yeah, you know movies I was and I was at the, the movie and, and, the, yeah. <laughs> and the play and I was involved in the podcast and the, the public speaking career and also the kids you know during all this time I, I your have mom, these two little kids you know and who now are 14 and 16 and I just feel like wow okay I really now I'm ready to go back go back to that basic go back to that sit there and write your next book. And so that's what I'm doing. And I really want to do it. And I'm really excited about it. I'm also afraid and doubtful and scared. And I'm all the things I am when I'm writing, which means I'm writing my next book.
2: Ah, oh, can't wait to read it. Cannot wait to read it. Thank you, Cheryl Strayed. Thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters with such an open heart and with so many wonderful things to say.
0: Thank you, Debbie. You are you are a woman after my own heart. I swear. We have to meet in real life someday and have sandwiches. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely, I would love that. I would love that. Thank you, you my can- dear. Oh,
2: my pleasure. You can find out more about Cheryl Strayed on her website at cherylstrayed.com. You can hear her podcast, Sugar Calling, and all of the podcast networks. This is the 16th year we've been broadcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Heffler & Co. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.